Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy, in for Jason Palmer today. Every weekday, we bring you a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Elon Musk, the face of the car maker Tesla, is back in hot water again for tweeting unverified information about the firm. Bosses like Mr. Musk aren't always reliable narrators, but happily for investors, there are new data sources that make it harder for executives to mislead them. We've been investigating. And an attic in France has yielded a work that some claim to have been painted by the 17th century master Caravaggio. Lucky for the owners, but how do we assess whether an unsigned, orphaned work is the real, very expensive deal or something a lot less valuable? First up, though, the People's Congress. China's parliament is holding its annual meeting today. The National People's Congress gathers every year to pass legislation proposed by President Xi Jinping. The meeting comes at an important time for the superpower. There are signs that the economy in China has been slowing while the trade war with America drags on. The Communist Party has ramped up security for the duration of the meeting. I'm standing outside the Great Hall of the People, a vast building on the west side of Tiananmen Square. The square itself is full of delegates arriving to take part in the National People's Congress, which is about to kick off inside. Our correspondent Mark Johnson is watching the gathering in Beijing. Mark, tell us about this meeting. What is it exactly? Well, the National People's Congress is the closest thing that China has to a parliament. So it's about 3,000 delegates who come to Beijing. Uh, Some of these people are nominated by local authorities from China's provinces. Some of them represent the armed forces and other interest groups. But they're all members of the Communist Party, or they're well trusted by the Communist Party. And they come once a year to Beijing for a session of parliament that usually lasts about 10 days. And it's uh, only one of two big events that happen in Beijing at this time of year. The other event is a meeting called the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. That's quite a mouthful. And that's another 2,000 people who are not allowed to legislate, but they're invited to Beijing to discuss the state of the nation and to make policy recommendations. And the guest list for that event includes household names in the worlds of business and sport and entertainment and, and so on. These two events are known as the two sessions or in Chinese as Lianghui. Uh, In most years, they are the biggest events in China's political calendar. And how significant is the Congress? Let's focus on that, if we could. Is it a bit of a rubber stamp affair or does it achieve anything? Does anything meaningful happen? Well, the reality is that all the decisions that will, in the coming days, appear to have been made by the National People's Congress, they have, of course, been settled in advance. 
The, the NPC does not exist to place checks on the power of the party's leaders. The votes it holds are not meaningful ones, and it's certainly not a parliament in the way that you or I would understand the word. But I think it has value nonetheless. China's leaders use the NPC to announce their plans and priorities for the year ahead, in particular their budget and economic targets. So the speeches are closely watched by people both inside and outside the country for that reason. The party also likes to talk about the two sessions as an opportunity for delegates from all around the country to come to Beijing and to make suggestions to the central government about how to handle issues that matter most to them. And to a limited extent, it does fulfil that role. And what's going to be on the agenda this year, given that there's quite a lot that's not been going absolutely straightforward for the Chinese leadership? What's their mood and priority? Well, uh, last year was a historic year at the NPC. So the delegates last year, they waved through a constitutional amendment uh, removing a rule that said that China's presidents could serve for only two terms. And the result of that was that Xi Jinping, who's both the head of the party and the country's president, can now hold on to both of those jobs indefinitely. And some people think that maybe he will want to hang on to them for a very long time to come. Now, this year, we're not expecting anything of quite that magnitude. I think much of the discussion this year is likely to be about the economy. Now, just this morning, we heard the Prime Minister Li Keqiang deliver the government's annual work report, which is usually the most significant of all the speeches that are given at this time of year. He announced that China was expecting economic growth of between 6 and 6.5% in 2019. And that's down from the 6.6%, which the party says China grew at last year, uh, which was itself China's slowest growth rate since 1990. You got a lot of raw numbers there on the economy for us, Mark, but how much can we actually trust these Chinese data when it comes to reporting their own progress? Yes, there is endless questions over these numbers, of course. Last year, the party reported growth in China of 6.6%. Many people think that, in fact, it was far lower than that. That's the technical economic data, the material that he's dealing with there. That's the Premier, Mr Li. But he also talks about a tough struggle, a grave and more complicated environment. So it sounds like he's messaging, be prepared for tougher times ahead. I think that's exactly part of what was going on today. Uh, As you say, Mr Lee's speech was packed with references to economic and other kinds of risks. He said that last year China's government faced a complicated terrain of increasing dilemmas. And I think he's talking both about the external environment, the trade war, Donald Trump, and also about China's own specific economic challenges. Now, for several years, China's policymakers have been trying to both keep growth at levels that they think is acceptable to uh, most Chinese people, while also trying to manage China's debt. And that's a tricky task, which uh, they have to continue in difficult times. And what is the progress on reaching agreement with America over the trade war? It looms over all of this, doesn't it? Yes, the trade war is certainly on people's minds here. I think China's leaders are probably pleased that Donald Trump decided to postpone the increase in tariffs that he planned would take place on March 1st, uh, this week's sort of big conclave would have been somewhat more uncomfortable for the party's leaders if he had not done so. Uh, Mr Lee's speech this morning, it did briefly reference the trade war. Uh, He acknowledged in his report that China-US economic and trade frictions had an adverse effect on the production and business operations of some companies. Um, Perhaps the most 
significant piece of legislation that's going to be passed at this NPC this year is actually a trade war related piece of legislation. That's the new foreign investment law, which has been pieced together relatively quickly and which is expected to be approved on the last day of this meeting on March 15th. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Going straight to the source is a useful rule for anyone seeking accurate information in financial markets, but that suggests that equity investors can best glean insight into a firm by quizzing its chief executive, and that's not often the case. In August last year, Elon Musk, the face of Tesla, now famously tweeted that he'd secured funding to take Tesla, his car-making company, private. The share price rocketed on the day Musk tweeted that later fell almost as fast. The information was false, riling the Securities and Exchange Commission, the regulator that looks after America's financial markets. The SEC then sued Mr. Musk for securities fraud. The SEC is alleging that was a false and misleading statement. Mr. Musk settled by paying a fine a few months later. He also stood down as chairman of Tesla's board. Musk, who has an estimated $20 billion fortune, and Tesla are each paying $20 million to resolve the case. Which... And he agreed to have all of his tweets approved by company lawyers. But last month, Mr. Musk was at it again, tweeting to say that Tesla was going to produce 500,000 vehicles this year without consulting the firm. Commission. The SEC has made a request in federal court in New York asking that Musk be held in contempt for violating an agreement requiring review of his tweets about Tesla. Regulators aren't the only ones frustrated by Mr. Musk's antics. Investors have long clamoured for more insight into Tesla's operations, and many are finding other ways to gain an edge. Jason Palmer recently spoke to our Wall Street correspondent, Alice Fullwood, about alternative data. Alternative data is a catch-all term for all the types of data that aren't included in things that investors traditionally look at, like company filings or market data. So on the production side, there are a couple of ways that investors can now track how many cars Tesla is producing without going directly to Elon Musk. Uh, for example, one firm, Quandle, which is sort of styles itself as an alternative data provider, um, what it did is it sort of had the insight that when you buy a car, you also buy an insurance policy. So if you went to a sort of basket of insurance companies and asked them for access to anonymous versions of their policy databases, you could figure out how many people were taking out insurance policies on Tesla cars and therefore how many cars Tesla had sold. Sneaky. Well, and not just Tesla, I suppose. Indeed. Yeah, it's much bigger than just Tesla. JP Morgan estimates that asset managers are spending $3 billion a year on data from various sources. So it sounds as if there's quite a lot of sources of, of this kind of alternative data. What, what are your favorites? 
I have a few favourites, so it's hard to choose. But one I particularly like is that last year when Apple's investors got concerned, there was a shortage of cobalt. One of the big data providers, which is actually run by UBS, the Swiss investment bank, they actually went into the, the Congo and took aerial satellite pictures of rivers around copper mines because cobalt is a byproduct of the copper mining process. And people were forecasting cobalt supply as a, a byproduct. And so it was constrained by how much copper people were mining. But their insight was that people had been mining copper for decades and cobalt was useless at the time. So they'd just been dumping it into rivers and streams near these copper mines. So they took these aerial pictures and they analyzed them. They could see that the cobalt was there and they could also see that people were extracting it. So that led them to believe that actually there was a glut in global cobalt supply, not a shortage. Uh, So that helped investors in Apple. Another fun example is you can now track specific companies' corporate jets. So this sort of famously was used by uh, a few hedge funds when uh, Johnson & Johnson was trying to buy a sort of smaller pharmaceutical company. So they had managed to figure out from public corporate aviation filing data which corporate jets was Johnson & Johnson's. They realized that it was parked in a city that was the headquarters of another pharmaceutical company. They figured it was going to buy it. They all increased their positions and made something like $300 million from that merger announcement. So these these kinds of examples sound a little bit more sort of fudgy. They sound a little bit more kind of inexact. Why why do people go to such trouble to have data that aren't, you know, the the hard, crunchy stuff that finance types are used to? Sure. So... This is sort of just the latest wave of investors pushing further to get sort of information that not everyone has. But sometimes it's actually a better indicator of of what's going on. So, for example, one of the traditional ways that you might try to gauge how optimistic a company's management is, is by listening to them on the earnings call, sort of how neutral or excited do they sound. Um, But actually, um, Quandle, the the data provider, um, have found that a more honest reflection of management's intentions can be found by uh, looking at their hiring intentions. So whether they're hiring a lot of staff, whether they're hiring for senior positions, um, those things are a more accurate reflection of management sentiment than what management will tell you. So, you know, it's... Companies leave all kinds of breadcrumbs lying around when they do all of their activities, and alternative data is just the sort of latest push to try and sweep them up. Right. Sort of stock pickers come into the the big data era. Exactly. And the debate you tend to hear with big companies and sort of big data is that, you know, they're using it to spy on us. And in fact, people are missing that it goes both ways. We can also use it to spy on them. Well, and in the case of firms like Tesla, it, it sort of seems to increase transparency as well. Right. So when uh, Elon Musk tweeted that Tesla was going to produce 500,000 cars this year, um, any investor confused by that could go and check either of those of those other corroborating sources. Um, so, you know, the, the SEC is really struggling to sort of rein Elon Musk in, but investors can, can look through those misleading statements. So, so these alternative data sources are, are kind of like a, an entirely new frontier of information for, for stock pickers? Yes and no. I would actually characterize it as the latest iteration of what sort of good investors have been doing for decades. Warren Buffett uh, allegedly picked stocks by examining companies' 10K filings much more closely than everybody else. Um, And then once it became clear that that was a sort of valid method of investigating companies, you did have lots more investors start to do that. So alternative data was sort of adopted by early hedge funds. And once people realized that was a valid way to analyze companies, you saw a lot more people get in on the act. Uh, So alternative data is just the latest iteration of this. Um, And you are seeing investors go further and further into more unusual sources to look for the same edge that reading 10K filings would have given them 30 years ago. 
historical perspective just makes you think, well, that's, that wasn't a before and after. It seems to be an evolution. They're like, right now, these are the sorts of, you know, we didn't have these satellites that were available for hire, but now we do, so we can get some of that. Yeah, exactly. So as all methods of data collection become cheaper, you'll see alternative data become mainstream, and then it won't be called alternative data. And then in 30 years, we'll be talking about some other kind of alternative data that we couldn't even dream of now. Well, look, if you, if you get a line on, on some good alternative data sources, then, then let me know. For, for now, thanks very much. Thank you. I'll keep in touch. <laughs> Alice Fullwood there, speaking to Jason Palmer. In the art world, how do you tell a real from a fake? So what you're looking at is the beautiful widow, Judith, finally having her revenge. Fiametta Rocco is our culture correspondent. Cutting the throat of the man who is threatening her family, her town, everything that she's grown up with. She's been studying the painting Judith and Holofernes, said to be the work of the Italian master Caravaggio, but many aren't so sure. And whispering into her ear is the old maid with the brown, wrinkled face and this goiter swelling at her throat, implacable woman who will not let Judith give up. Fiametta, it's a very vivid painting. What's it based on? It's a very well-known Old Testament story. Judith goes into the tent of the Assyrian general, Holofernes, who's about to destroy her hometown. He gets drunk, falls asleep, and she basically she slits his throat. The so far, so cheerful. So far, so cheerful. The picture's going to be put up for auction in France. The estimate is £100 million. Part of the reason why the estimate is so high is because the people who are selling it believe it's a Caravaggio, but partly it's also about the market. This picture has an export license from France. The fact that it has an export license and can be bought by anybody across the world is probably the biggest single reason why this price has been put on it. Why is Caravaggio in particular so important to art lovers? Well, you know, it was an extraordinary period, This the, the beginning of the 17th century. You suddenly come into tumultuous works. The most famous artist of this kind was Caravaggio. He was very, very talented. He was a loner. He was violent. He murdered a man, and he died himself at 38. He painted relatively little, but what he painted was extraordinary, marked by very dramatic use of light. And this is clearly what struck the art historians the moment they saw this picture. And how was this particular painting found? It was a French art historian who found it near Toulouse in the attic of a farmhouse. It had been there for well over a century known to the family, considered to be quite a scruffy painting. They'd never hung it up. And in fact, burglars had broken into this roof space and they'd taken a whole lot of stuff but decided to leave the picture behind. And how did they decide to prove that it was the real thing if they'd been ignoring it in the attic for so long? So, you know, after after the break-in, problems with the insurers, everything, they, they get an art historian to come and have a look at this picture. He brought in a um, specialist Baroque art historian and clearly they became more and more interested. So how do they go about 
proving the, the authorship of the painting? Well, art historians sort of started looking at the canvas. Canvas at that time was not made big enough for this picture. So it had to be two pieces that were joined together. And the exact place where this is joined is very, very, very similar to where a previous picture of Caravaggio's was joined. Then on the left-hand side, you have this great red curtain where an artist can really show the confidence in using paint with a brush. And there, the similarity with Caravaggio is extraordinary. You don't get to be culture correspondent without having looked at a lot of Caravaggio. Is this the same sort of aura? Does it speak to you in the same way? as works you've seen by that master. So interesting, he painted exactly the same subject eight years earlier in 1599. So this 1607 painting found in Toulouse has an enormous amount of the same drama. This picture struck me as very wild and very exciting, but for me it has good bits and bad bits. Judith, lit up, quietly furious, is magnificent. The slitting of the throat, mm, it's a bit schoolboy opera scene, to be really honest. And then Holofernes with these rather kind of ratty, badgery teeth, that's not Caravaggio for me. I think there were probably more than one artist. Caravaggio did part of it, and his studio did the rest. Did you think we'll get anywhere, really, on what the absolute authorship of this is? Or is it the kind of painting that's always going to be subject to argument? Well, it's not signed. And in that sense, you never really will know for sure. So it has to be where it hits you in the chest. Do you believe or not? It's a question of faith, like everything. Thank you very much, Vimetta. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.